damn, let's talk some shit. It's Polly Siegel and Victoria Aaron, two licensed therapists who've spent way too much money on degrees, certifications, and trainings. Mm. We both love what we do and couldn't imagine working in any other profession, but we're forced to be serious all the time, and that gets boring. Shit Talking Shrinks discusses important mental health topics, the human experience, and society at large, while poking fun along the way. It won't be all fun and games because after every episode, you'll walk away with tangible tools to navigate life more effectively. We love a tangible tool. This episode is sponsored by Joyous. Okay, I have to tell you about this incredible company, Joyous. It's an at-home ketamine treatment that delivers ketamine to your door for $129 a month, which is absolutely unheard of because most ketamine treatment is hella expensive. And what ketamine does is it helps our prefrontal cortex work more optimally. And the prefrontal cortex helps with decision-making, problem-solving, emotional regulation. It's the part of the brain that gets us through hard shit. And so if you're someone who has struggled with anxiety and depression and you've tried antidepressants or you've tried mood stabilizers and they haven't helped, ketamine is absolutely the next step. And I have seen my clients thrive while using ketamine. Joyous makes it super easy to access this life-changing medicine, and you can start the process by visiting www.joyous.team. Hello, everyone. We have such an awesome guest, such a fabulous guest. I'm really excited that you're here, Sam. We have Sam Silverman, who is a board-certified psychiatrist as well as a comedian, which is not really a normal combination. Like Most psychiatrists are not funny. If I'm going to be honest, most psychiatrists are like a little weird and you're not. So, (laughs) well, you know, those two things aren't mutually exclusive. I think by the end of the show, your listeners will know that I am both weird and hopefully funny. Yeah, but definitely weird. But to have like such a like outwardly funny psychiatrist, I think it's just such a rarity. So you are the perfect fit for shit talking shrinks and we're grateful. And I do like shit talking still. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I'm pumped about it. Okay, so today on Shit Talking Shrinks, we are talking about really how to begin the psychiatric med process if it's something that is clinically appropriate and necessary. I have found in my own clinical work that there's so much skepticism around getting on meds. There's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of like storytelling and narratives around it. That must mean I'm crazy. That must mean I'm really fucked up. Like only really, really severe people get on meds. And I have those conversations all the time clinically to be like, no, that's really not the case. There are more like antidepressants in our sewage system that people want to admit. Like it is so common, so accessible, and so normal. And so I'm hoping that we can dive into that to help people who are skeptical or have trepidation, how they can get started and really navigate the system properly. I think to even add to that, like there's even like helpers in our field, right? Like I remember I dealt with chronic pain for many years and I remember my psychiatrist was like, I don't think you have chronic pain. I think you're bipolar. And I was like, no. And he tried to put me on Rexalti. And it was like the first like uh, side effect was face tremors or something. I don't know. And I was like, oh, fuck no. And I'm definitely, I can't do that. I did try it and it turns out I'm not bipolar. I actually have chronic pain, but I'd be fine with both now, you know, whatever. But I was like, no, I can't. 
I can't have it, right? Because I'm in this field. I'm supposed to be well, right? But it's like you take meds to be well. That's why we do that. And we know that this field doesn't have any bias either. And so, you know, just because we're healers, because we're people that help others with illness doesn't mean we don't have the potential to have that ourselves and require treatment necessary. We often get tricked into thinking that we're the best people at evaluating our own brain. (laughs) And it's like, Hats off to you if you think you are, but you're measuring what you're measuring with that same measuring instrument and you're going to get what you're going to get. You know, you can't use that anxious brain to have total clarity with your anxiety. It's a fallacy. And some of us are like really fucking sick, you know, like really, really crazy, (laughs) just not good. Oh yeah, absolutely. We often think that we're going to be stronger than that. Patients think that they're going to be stronger than somebody who needs medication, which is so backwards. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, you can't tell from the podcast, but I am gigantic. And I also take 80 milligrams of Prozac and my strength, my bench press, my squat has had nothing to do with the dosage I've been on, to be clear. (laughs) Yeah, no correlation whatsoever. Both height and shoulder width, I'm about the size of a standard doorway. Could not tell, Sam. Wait, well, hold up. I'm like an inch or two shorter than the doorway itself, but the width is the same. Are you full blood Jew or are you a halfy? I'm a halfy. Oh, that's why you'd have the height. That's why I'm really big. Yeah, yeah. I don't let people know that when I'm telling jokes about being a gigantic Jew. You know, I like to have the suspense, but yeah, I'm a halfsy. It's your dad's not Jewish? My dad's not Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. My mom's a 5'2". So yeah. You can hold her in the palm of your hand. You're like, hey, mom, love you, mom. Yeah. But that's also where I got my OCD. So, you know, pluses and minuses there. (laughs) That is also where I got my OCD, not from my mom. I'm not going to mention who I got it from because that person might not want to be, you know, blasted. There's only two options, Paulina. People can deduce what they want to deduce. I'm not going to say it out loud. Right. (laughs) But yes, also have OCD. Take 30 milligrams of Lexapro for my OCD every single day. Hell yeah. You got a good psychiatrist. I do. And I will mention him. Dr. Reddy, you are a homie. And you're also hot. Is he? He's super hot. Wow. I don't think he's going to listen to this episode, but like every time I see him, like I get a little flustered. I'm like, oh, hey, Dr. Reddy, I've been really doing well. Thanks. <laughs> you, ha- you have no idea how close colleagues Dr. Reddy and I are. You know, we may be on papers together and here you are. You know, I guess you're not trashing his good name. You're speaking kindly about him, but uh, still be reported back. <laughs> Thank you. That's incredible. I mean, if Dr. Reddy feels honored that I want to have sex with him, then I don't know what to say. Like, that's, that's my truth. I will not let you know whether or not he feels honored because he and I have no relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get that? Where they're like, this is how much I could bench. So Prozac amount. When they say strength and stronger, that's the only thing I can come up with in terms of what the fuck they're talking about. Stronger than need in psychiatric meds. Yeah. Not sure what that is yet. Victoria, are you on psych meds? I'm not. So here's the thing, right? I should be, I think. And I'm not. I was on Vyvanse Adderall. Like I got that early diagnosis of ADD, you know, very young. And then when I got sober, I'm obsessed with stimulants. So it was like just not going to work for me. When I get really bad anxiety, though, I'll pop a three hundo 
of some gabapentin. That shit hits so nice. Like there's just nothing like that for me. And I do it a couple of times a month when the anxiety is ramped up. I could save the world at that point. It's not necessarily then one we usually think about with anxiety as needed or in general, but it can be incredibly helpful. For me, because it's a non-narcotic and I was a huge benzo fiend, it works, you know? Definitely. It's a good option if that's the case. And I use it a lot for that. Can you give our listeners kind of an overview of what are SSRIs? What are mood stabilizers? Like going through the different drug classifications and what they're prescribed for. Yeah. So we call it like the general group first antidepressants, which will break into like SSRIs, SNRIs, tricyclic antidepressants. We really don't use monoamine oxidase inhibitors anymore. And then we have some other ones that are more grab baggy all over the place. I like using SSRI, SNRI rather than antidepressant as much as possible because like we were saying, it's, they're used for so much more than depression. It's not just for that reason. And those generally will take some time to work and build up. And even the higher we go, the more time it takes. OCD, we can sometimes see benefit like 8 to 12 weeks out from going up from 20 to 30. That's more additional than that. Yeah, those are kind of that class. And they, they will work by modulating the reuptake of serotonin, norepinephrine, some of the other catecholamines. Doesn't mean they're just like correcting a chemical imbalance. That's kind of been debunked for years and years and years. You know, it's much more nuanced than that. That's the mechanism of how it works, but we don't necessarily know what it's doing entirely downstream in that way, what's leading to that benefit itself. Mood stabilizers are kind of fall into two different categories, which are a group that's non-antipsychotic in nature. And so lithium depakote, carbamazepine, lamotrigine, those are some of the more common gabapentin has some weak mood stabilizing properties, but we don't really use it too much for that. And those things will help kind of more with bipolar disorder. I add them onto depression a lot, lots of different things with irritability, general stabilizing of that mood and those mood fluctuations. And then there are antipsychotics, and a lot of those are mood stabilizers as well. And we use those for things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, but we add on a lot of antipsychotics to antidepressants to make them work better for depression, for anxiety, for OCD. Rixolti, for instance, I love their drug commercials because they advertise themselves as an add-on to antidepressants to make things work better. They're the only drug commercial I tell people to watch and listen to. It destigmatizes right off the bat. It says like sometimes you need another medication on top of the one that you're taking. Sometimes the one that you take isn't good enough. And yeah, we do that a lot. I feel like the psychiatry field really needs like an overhaul when it comes to marketing, right? Like if I were to go into your office and you were like, we're going to put you on antipsychotic, I'd be like, you could go fuck yourself. You know, I don't want to like, where's the marketing team? Hello, are you out there? You know, there are a lot of different names that we use. And so, yeah, I try to stay away from that nomenclature, but I'm also honest about it too, because you talked about looking up Rick Salty, you're going to look it up and say, hey, this is used for schizophrenia. And so immediately, if I don't say some people call this an antipsychotic, people will read that and say, oh, well, hell no, I'm not taking this. You know, you know, Reddy thinks I'm crazy and I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy, Shorty. So what you're saying is that even if you were put on an antipsychotic medication in addition to 
an antidepressant, that it doesn't mean that you're going through psychosis or delusions or anything like that. In fact, I would say that most people that I put on an antipsychotic do not have psychosis. Higher doses of those things, yeah, they probably do have that, but we use them for a lot of things. OCD, risperidone and Abilify are good choices to add on if things like Lexpro, things like Prozac aren't working as much. And so I would say the majority of people that I have. Okay. So those are the different medications and that's very helpful. What do you do when I hear a lot in my clinical practice, like, well, if I get on meds, it's going to cause like permanent damage to my brain. Like it's going to change my brain chemistry forever, even if I get off of that. Is that true? Yes and no. Permanent damage, no. At least not in these types of situations here, in these types of medications. Like there's not really much in the way of evidence that SSRIs or other things cause permanent damage to the brain. You know, some antipsychotics, if they cause too many issues with like other metabolic issues, will cause some issues with our neurovascular system. But, you know, it's not going to cause damage. Now, there are some people that will have sustained benefit from those medications. So like sometimes you will be on an SSRI for several years and when you come off, the benefit of that medication has been sustained for some period of time. And so that can be that there that's positive. Although if your depression is recurrent, if you have these symptoms coming up repeatedly, there's a decent chance you'll need to be on that long term. But yeah, in terms of like causing permanent damage, not really. People will cause narratives that way, you know, and it's kind of like then there's an easier place to put the blame onto something rather than the illness. It's the treatment. That's a safer spot to blame that. But yeah, not permanent damage. The only exceptions I would say are that certain sedative hypnotics, benzos, ambient, other things, if you're taking high doses long term, will potentially lead to dementia or contribute to that. Yeah. And that's the big thing that I see most commonly where I have to really talk to people about that. Ambien's like a secret killer for people. Like the way it's being used right now, I don't know if you know what, what I do, Sam, but I'm in the addiction field. And so like the amount of people that are going into a treatment center for Ambien because their doctors had them on it for multiple years is insane. I want to take a quick pause to talk about our sponsor, a company called BetterHelp. It's an online therapy platform where all the therapists are licensed and accredited professionals. It's affordable. You pay a low flat fee for therapy with your therapist, and it's convenient. Do it at your own time and at your own pace, and you can communicate with your therapist as much as you want and whenever you feel is needed. And more importantly, it's effective. Thousands of people have benefited from therapy using BetterHelp. And we're really grateful to offer all of our listeners 10% off your first month. So if you're interested in receiving therapy ASAP, click the link in our show notes and you can get started and you get to save money. I get a lot. Okay, I have my first psychiatrist appointment. How the fuck do I prepare for this? Like, what do I even say to him or her or them? How would you invite someone to best prepare for their first psychiatry appointment? I'm going to tell you what I would tell you to tell your clients, and then you can figure out how to translate that as best as you see fit there. But I think the biggest thing is having a decent idea about 
history with mental health, mental illness, both personally and family wise. And then really about what some of the core complaints are or challenges and difficulties that you have there. And so I think really kind of getting that background information about yourself, about what's going on, about what's bothering you, what you're hoping to address with that is the biggest thing. And that's kind of like preparing for the information. But then what I also tell people is to come in with some degree of an open mind about what's going to happen with that there. You know, one of the big issues I see recently is that people have a symptom and they will automatically diagnose themselves already. And so the problem is that if I don't agree with that diagnosis, even if this person is in a ton of distress, if they're experiencing these things, I can validate that distress as much as possible. If they're convinced that something's going on, then that's going to be invalidating. And, you know, a lot of times that even if it's just like a theoretical diagnosis mentioned, they've already glommed on to that, you know? And so I think that's the big thing that I tell people is, you know, you want to come in with what your complaint is, but if you're coming in with a preconceived notion about what is necessarily going on, what you want the treatment to definitively be, there's a chance you'll get disappointed. And that's, I think, the biggest thing that I tell people. So know about you as best you can and what to bring there, but also know that you're not the clinician, no matter how strong your clinical experience is. You know, even if I was going in to see a new psychiatrist, particularly if I had never seen one, but I am a psychiatrist, I'd really have to remind myself, I am not the clinician. I'm not going to be diagnosing myself. I can't use this brain to diagnose this brain. No matter what anybody else has told me, no matter what my clinical experience tells me, no matter what I see on social media, all those things like that. Those are kind of the two biggest things that I tell people is prepare your information, prepare to learn something that isn't what you think is going on. It's always interesting to me, like when I meet somebody who is like shooting sewage water into their veins and they're like, yeah, I'm not going on an antidepressant. And I'm like, what are we talking about? Like, Literally, it could change your life for the better forever. You could be well. You know, you could enjoy your life. You could wake up and not want to fucking die every day. Like it could just be incredible for you. But because of whatever stigma, whatever bias, whatever bullshit that, you know, maybe happened to your friend or something, it's like open mind is so important. Absolutely. And I always tell people, you know, if you're then going there and dictating, that medication process one way or another in a way that isn't necessarily scientifically based or evidence-based, you're still self-medicating. You're doing it with the doctor's prescription pad, but you're still doing it. There are a lot of different facets to it. It's not just the substance itself. It's how we're doing it, what we're seeing, all those things like that. How do you help people quit vaping? I got to know. I mean, there are some things that can help with nicotine addiction. Wellbutrin is a big one that we use. I was actually, I did some research in residency with the person who got that approved by the FDA for smoking cessation. And she's like intense about that type of stuff. There are some other medications too. You know, nicotine supplementation I will use. And so that's not a be all end all. You're still using that, but like it's better on your lungs to have the gum or 
a patch. Gum is going to be the one, if you're using correctly, that will most mimic the release of the nicotine into your bloodstream. But it's hard. And then there's some other behavioral things too, but it's difficult. You know, at the end, there's still going to be a leap of faith. Whenever you're finally going to put that down, it's going to feel really fucking hard. And that's always the biggest thing too with that. No matter how close you get with all those other stuff, it's never going to be easy. Sorry, I had to ask. You can send me an invoice. No, no, no. I mean, think about how many people are trying to get off vaping. So it's, I'm glad you asked that. Do you help people with food addiction? Yeah, I do. You know, it's not like something I necessarily specialize in there. And usually I'm helping people with the other elements that are going through that. So, you know, food addiction rarely functions independently of itself. And so dealing with things related to depression or anxiety or ADHD or other addictions or whatever else the case may be, trauma is going to be extremely important to do that. And so, yeah, I help to some extent, but I also help people a lot with the stuff surrounding it too. Yeah. And that's often where I can be most helpful when it's not something that's like in my particular sub expertise, like things that are kind of nuanced, like food addiction, or like if I'm helping somebody with like a paraphilia or something like that, do I have expertise in paraphilic disorders? No, I can help them with the stuff around it more so than anything else. Yeah. I mean, I asked that question because I think we think of psychiatrists in a very stereotypical way of like, oh, you're anxious or you're depressed and you go see them. But I think it's much more expansive than that. And if someone's struggling with other things, and again, there's a lot of co-occurring issues when someone is experiencing mental health struggles. And so I want people to realize that whether it's substance abuse or food addiction, psychiatrists can be helpful in so many different ways too. Yeah. Often, you know, we talked about kind of like that storytelling or narrative telling with certain medications. You know, I often... I'm encouraging people and really working to try to consider other things that are outside of whatever narrative has come about with the illness there. Not that that is invalid, but we can have a myopic view of what's influencing us and not really see all these other things coming around there. And you have to be careful with that because that can be revelatory or it can also piss somebody off to the point that they aren't going to seek psychiatric care again. So I know we have to wrap up in a little bit, but I know Paulina usually recaps the tangible tools, but I'm going to do it. So the tangible tools, right, is like when you're going to see a psychiatrist, right, when you're struggling, it's really important. The two most important things are to have your history, right, to understand your history, to get as much information as possible and to keep an open mind and to talk about what you're currently struggling with. One of the things that I see happening in the addiction field really, really regularly now is a lot of people are going out of the country or to like California or different places and they're doing like alternative therapies like ayahuasca, you know, herb medicine, things like that. And I wonder, like, I don't know if you can tell us quickly, but what do you think about that as a board certified psychiatrist and where do you stand with that? There is a lot of therapeutic benefit in psychedelics. We don't know enough about how to use that and tap into that. And so a lot of what is happening right now that I see is people are taking certain elements of the therapeutic benefit, either that's more perceived and narrative-based or more literature-based, and extrapolating that. 
for instance, there's some stuff that like we'll use certain things as end of life care. And so we'll use kind of like a macro dose of something to have somebody have some sort of experience or those things like that. And there can be a lot of benefit there. There's a lot of benefit that we're starting to see in psilocybin and PTSD and other things like that. There's a lot of other stuff with LSD and other things that are going to come about, MDMA. So to any of our listeners who are going to the desert to trip balls and try and cure their PTSD, there might be other avenues. (laughs) And listen, we are in a really, it's not easy to go about some of these things too. It is hard to do research on anything that is a schedule one controlled substance. You can't get the same federal funding. You can't get the same NIH grants, other things like that. And so it means that that is often where some of that work is being done, at least on a more rapid level. But with that comes more risk. The other thing, too, is, you know, people get weird about medication and where it's manufactured and other things like that. But I can at least control a little bit about what's in a medication, or at least there's somebody out there that's doing that. You know, people don't realize that like psilocybin, for instance, there are tons of different strains out there. Thousands. Yeah. And so like to know what strain is going to be helpful to other stuff like that, are you getting the same consistency in all of that there? I mean, there's, there's a lot of unknown. And so now I will say this, if I have a patient who is saying, I am going to microdose psilocybin and I don't care what you do. I'm going to try to support them in the best way I can. And some people don't do that, but I do. So what I will do is I'll look at the evidence and say, okay, here's what I see in this limited evidence that's the safety with your current medications and all those things like that. I think it's probably okay. This is what we need to watch out for. This is what we need to do. But I can't necessarily condone that or say that's totally safe. But I'm not going to say it's all bad and just say, no, I'm done with that. I'm going to have a nuanced conversation with somebody. So you keep an open mind as well. Yeah. I mean, you have to. And that's the case every single time I see a new patient. And I can't necessarily convey that to the best of my ability always because it's scary seeing a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. uncomfortable. It's nerve wracking. I always tell people right away, whether or not anxiety is part of your process, I know it's scary as shit seeing me. You know, and not just the weird hair and face thing, like everything. Yeah. And you're gigantic. Yeah. Although it's so funny. My patients don't get scared by me despite my size, which is funny. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So in wrapping up this fabulous episode, and since you are a comedian, tell us your best joke. I'll tell you my favorite joke. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us your favorite joke. You know, I do mentor a lot of medical students and it's important for me to let them know how best to choose a specialty because they're not just going to go into psychiatry. They're going to go into whatever. And you can appreciate this. I tell people the number one thing you need to do is really think about the most difficult patient you've ever had. The one that's given you the most challenges in medical school, and then really think about what you're going to want to do with that patient. That's going to give you the most joy. That's going to make you feel the most fulfilled in working with that difficult patient. If you want to figure out what makes them tick, what makes them difficult, what's contributed to those struggles, those difficulties, you become a psychiatrist. And if you want to shut them up, you become an anesthesiologist. Nah. (laughs) You know, if you want to stare at images of them by yourself in a dark basement, you become a radiologist. If you want to see some titties, you become a plastic surgeon. (laughs) 
We love it. We love it. Okay. Well, Sam Silverman, thank you so very much for coming on Shit Talking Shrinks and helping people really get a greater understanding of the psychiatric process and meds and, and how to better understand it and show up. You guys are awesome. I really appreciate it. Big, big love. <laughs>